Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 412. I was just talking to Sarah about how talking about COVID again is not mentally what I want to do because I really wish that we could say that we had moved past this. But Mm -hmm. if you're not in America, you probably know. And America, you know, it is not trending in our favor. And so uh, we do have a couple of questions that we're going to get to. But before we jump into that, um, I have some pretty exciting positive news. Um. I I know I that you would know love the to news. start the show with exciting. <laughs> um, me too. So, listeners, I mentioned previously that our family was going through foster training, and yesterday we officially received approval to be resource parents for foster care. Is actually how you re- um, word that. So, Congratulations! Thank you, and it is such a light among all of the what feels like darkness uh, 2020 has brought. And we started this journey November 2019. It is now July 2020. Um, It has been something that brings me hope, something that makes me feel like I can make a difference. It's one of those things I just genuinely felt called to do. And I'm glad that I kind of followed my instincts. And it was um, longer and more drawn out because of COVID. We couldn't do things like get fingerprinted or um, get health appointments for all of our family, like some of the things that we needed to do. Uh, But we have finally been able to move forward with that and hope to welcome some youngsters in need of a safe, stable home in the near future. Um, I do just want to say I will not be talking about any of the kids and their personal stories or families or anything like that to respect the privacy. But um, I share this because I hope that it inspires anyone who's thought about doing it. I think that there's a stigma about foster um, fostering, especially from um, movies and things like that. Um, but also because it is really a time in the world where people who live um, in less than ideal situations are more than ever in need of safe, stable homes because of needing to be in your home so much. And so if it's something that, you know, resonates with you as maybe something you have space in your home and your life to do, um, it doesn't need to lead to adoption. And you can actually even do it short term, something they call respite, like helping other foster families have, um, like a little bit of a break um, for whatever needs they may have. Like there's a lot of different ways you can do it. So my hope is that if you hear the hear my story and feel like that's something you could do or would be interested to learn more about, you're welcome to email me, um, Stacy at realeverything.com, and I can share with you um, experiences and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but I 
I genuinely feel like there is such a need for this right now more more than ever. And so I do feel like it is a little bit topically related to the other things that we're going to jump into on yeah. the show. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess that's the, so I just sort of tell the kids is, you know, the thing with COVID is it, it does actually color everything, right? There is not a, an aspect of our lives that is not impacted by it. And for you with your journey, it both impacted the process of getting approved as foster parents, but now it's also like impacted the, the, the need for more foster parents. So it's, it's kind of coming in, right? It just, it just has intertwined itself, uh, throughout our lives in sort of every aspect. Um, which is my very poor attempt at a segue because we all know that Stacy's the segue queen on the show and not me, but we do have, um, a, a series of questions that I think are going to touch at different aspects of, COVID and our response to it and, uh, and our way forward and some of the science that has come out recently. And I, I, you know, I, I hope that this is a show that sort of answers some of these like really common lingering questions, because even though we have, I think six different questions and comments to read on the show, these are representative. These are questions that we got multiple different versions of and so um, I want to just thank everyone for sending your questions and um, and seeing us as um, a trusted resource. We really take that role very seriously. We put a lot of effort, as you know, into the research that goes behind these shows. Um, and we try to be very transparent in terms of the limits of our own knowledge and the limits of current human knowledge. Um, and so... I hope that um, uh, I hope that you continue to come to us with your questions and um, understand that sometimes the answer is oh, <laughs> but we try to have the answers be a little better than that, <laughs> just s- slightly. But sometimes, every once in a while, um, hopefully not so much today. I want to start this episode with a. Um, uh, email that we got through from Kathy. Um, and I think it encapsulates, um, it encapsulates our experiences, I think in many ways. Um, so Kathy wrote, thank you so much for your podcast living in Wisconsin where the cases are going up, but everything is open. My husband and I have chosen to stay isolated. I have not been in a store since March 13th. I have been to two medical appointments and that is it. I wore a mask for those. I am 59 years old, but I feel I am at higher risk because I am on Humira for rheumatoid arthritis. I have fatty liver disease, even though I have never been overweight, have heart and kidney issues, both related to birth defects. I do eat AIP with a few reintroductions and have been in remission for over two years. I've been feeling pretty down the past few days as I had to miss our youngest grandson's first birthday party. I did attend virtually, but my adult children and six grandchildren are not practicing social distancing, so missing them has been heartbreaking. We do play in the yard together occasionally, but maintain our distance. It is so hard not hugging. I do get out for a walk daily. I do many crafts, so I have been sewing, painting, etc. I just wanted to thank you for giving the information and continue believing that my husband and I are on the right course. Thank you, Kathy. Such empathy for Kathy. I feel uh, 
I feel all the things. And I just want to commend her for sticking with it. I know that it's difficult. Um, I've been there and, you know, like I've turned down um, events that my family have done together and different things like that. And it's, it's so painful. And um, I'm glad that she is able to get outside and um, find ways to engage as much as you can, because I do think, um, as we will talk about on the show, this is not ending anytime soon. This isn't going anywhere. And um, we have to find ways to physically distance, not just social distance. I know that was the word that everyone came up with at first. And I think what is important to understand is that we as humans are social beings. Uh, We've talked about this on the show before. And I just, I think our emotional um, well-being is so dependent on those connections with others that um, I hope I hope we can continue to find ways to do that, whether it's, you know, being six feet apart and, and wearing masks, but still, you know, sitting across from each other and having conversation and doing different kinds of things. Um, but uh, if you are at risk, and you can't do that, like it is so hard. And virtual is just, fortunately, we have that, right? Like, fortunately, technology exists. And this isn't like the 19, what is it? 18, 19, 12, um, Spanish flu. Yeah, 17, 18, isn't it? 1917, 1918. Yeah, it's not 1912. That's a different thing. That's an overture. Okay. (laughs) That's, That's a famous let's just say fortunately we're a hundred years later than the last time this happened and we do have the option for virtual which um Mm -hmm. is great but not it doesn't it doesn't suffice it's just not and it's it's hard I don't know what else to say it just it sucks I the the reason why I wanted to sort of start this episode with with Kathy's comment. And I mean, there's the other questions that we're going to get into. There's a very common thread of, um, of the challenge of being somebody who is very informed, who, um, is personally concerned for, you know, the health implications if we as individuals were to get it, um, and also feels the, sort of altruistic commitment to protecting the vulnerable in our communities through removing ourselves from the potential pool that, that COVID could infect. Um, I think that, um, I think that it's really important to, to understand how common this experience is that, that doesn't necessarily, not to, 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 uh, invalidate that experience actually to further validate it. Right. I think that, um, I know we have had some really rough days in the Ballantine household this past week, um, you know, related to the stress of knowing that cases are spiking in our County and in our state. And, um, and as we're trying to make decisions in terms of how we're going to handle the, the fall, um, you know, it's, it's, I, I want to emphasize that this feeling of um, of the stress around being somebody who is taking precautions, of feeling like we're missing out because we're observing other people in our lives who 
don't feel as motivated to take the same precautions um, for whatever reason, uh, that is a real challenge. And I, I just want our listeners to understand that if you are feeling that, if you are feeling that it's, it's hard enough to be physically isolated in our homes, to not have that same kind of human contact, to not have that normalcy, that routine, all of those things are challenging. And then the like, uh, what is it like? I oh, like the phrase I the phrase I want to use is uh, not G-rated, um, but it does involve icing um, that's not made out of sugar. Um, <laughs> the like final straw on top of all of that. Let's go to another better analogy. Is um, is feeling like am are, am I doing too much? Am I am I missing out on all of this? Am I having this hard time? Not necessarily because I can see other people who are still, you know, living their sort of normal lives. Um, and that part of it is that, that self doubt that that causes, but also that magnifies that sort of feeling of missing out. And I, I just want to emphasize to our listeners that, um, it's okay if you're feeling that way, that is common and it doesn't take away from how important it is to continue um, physical isolation, social distancing, mask use, hand washing, right? Those are, those are our, our tools still. And, um, and so just know that, um, we are together in our aloneness. I don't know if that came off as eloquently as I was hoping it would. I think you did. I completely understand and agree. And, I think, um, I think there's like a hashtag alone together, together alone, something like that. Um, it's, yeah, I, I would say I, there, we've talked before about this roller coaster of emotions and, um, some days are, are better than others. Fortunately in our house, we're, we're having some good days lately. Um, but I think, um, inevitably when, when that feeling hits, it is what it is. And I just want to remind you, we have had other shows you can go back to, to talk about, um, things you can do to feel better, to work through the anxiety, to, um, help yourself focus on the positive. And those are the, the only things that will, or that at least help me pull through, um, when I am feeling down, um, about everything that's happening. And, um, even if your state is, um, doing great and you're very low risk, I'm using quotation marks when I say that, um, I think sometimes, especially as empath, empath, empaths, yes, empaths, um, we, we feel that as well, right? Like just knowing Mm -hmm. that you, that there's someone else, um, experiencing, such hardship. You know, I didn't, I don't live in New York city, but watching what was happening there was breaking my heart and bringing me down, you know, just in and of itself. So no matter what your circumstance, I think we, we can all relate. We, you're not alone. And, um, I hope that there are at least some things that can, can bring you back to positive. So that said, I know, I know we have a lot of like specific questions we want to, um, 
dive into, right, Sarah? Yeah. So um, let me start with Jeannie's question. Uh, Jeannie writes, Dear Stacey and Sarah, thank you for your most recent podcast on COVID. I know you must be tired of talking about it, but it was so helpful to me, mostly to know that I'm not the only one still concerned about this virus. I live in Missouri where cases are increasing and officials are not taking the virus seriously. Although my hometown of St. Louis was St. Louis? St. Louis. St. Louis. Stacy, help me. St. Louis, yes. Sorry, okay. I didn't hear you say St. Louis until you said St. Louis. And I was like, did you just say St. Louis? No, 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 no. No, St. Louis. <laughs> yes. Okay, thank uh, although my hometown of St. Louis was mostly following the science at the beginning, now that our local cases have fallen, half the population has gone back to life as normal. Like Sarah, I feel so much dismay that science is being disregarded and that this could all be done so much better. I'm so frustrated that we're living in a time where experts are demonized and people make up their own truths, facts, and reality. Masks should not be political, but that is exactly what is going on in Missouri. Except for Trader Joe's, most local stores have too many unmasked individuals, and like Sarah experienced, they do not respect turns or personal space. I have one child, a 10-year-old daughter, and she is so lonely from not having any playmates. But like Stacy, my neighbors are not taking the virus serious enough for her to play with them. It breaks my heart to watch my daughter watch them all play together in the cul-de-sac in front of my house. It will be such a hard decision about whether she will return to school in the fall or be socially isolated indefinitely. A neighborhood mom told me she was going to tell our school board that she won't send her kids back if they require masks because she believes masks are dangerous to her kids. My Facebook friends that live in the suburban county next to St. Louis are posting pictures of their kids at dance competitions, ball games, and swim parties, even those who were so worried about the virus a month ago. My family is looking around at all this and have begun to question me that we need to be so careful. I was really starting to feel gaslit, especially when we saw the chiropractor. She spent the entire hour trying to convince me that we shouldn't wear masks because rebreathing carbon dioxide could cause an alkaline pH and immediately cause us to enter fight or flight, and so the adjustment would not work, blah, blah, hypoxia. It's dangerous for children to wear one, even for a minute, how the pandemic was overblown, the numbers inflated, it only attacks the weak, how I shouldn't believe the news, how the government shouldn't be the one to control the pandemic, how flu vaccines probably caused it. I believe, I believed, I didn't believe most of what she said, but I didn't know up from down when I left her office. She really had me questioning myself and my decisions. Your podcast brought me relief and validation. The chiropractor did say one thing that has been bothering me, though, that Sarah hopefully can answer. She says that it's very bad for our immune systems to be socially distancing and that when we all come to back together, it will be disastrous. I know that historically native tribes have been killed off by the arrival of European diseases that they've been isolated from for tens of thousands of years. But are you concerned that you haven't shared any germs with someone outside your family for three months? What about if this goes on for a year? Also, I wanted to say that I appreciated the science on how protesters are not spreading the virus and how you've come out in support of Black Lives Matter. It was the right thing to do. Thank you, Jeannie. I adore Jeannie, and I adore how you chose not to take any breaths during the <laughs> fight or fright <laughs> sentence. I was like, yep, this is... I uh, was, I was, that was just my, um, my uh, interpretation of what the chiropractor sounded like. I believe it was accurate. I was yep. I was all in there. Oh <laughs> uh, gosh. So as she noted, this has been um an issue in our neighborhood and it is fascinating to to me. So Virginia is kind of in the middle. Um we have a governor who's an uh MD doctor 
and requires face masks legally anywhere in public um, and has since they began reopening. We were also, I believe, the state that closed the longest from the get-go. There were extensions in states on the West Coast, but um, our governor made a very small, a very strong stance from the get-go of, we're going to be shut down. (laughs) Like, businesses are shut down. You're staying home. And when we started phasing back in, um, masks were mandatory. And it's not, it's not being... um, respected by everyone and certainly not um, at this point. I think when we started back in phase one and more people were in the neighborhood, people were wearing masks. And now I look out and they're the, like, I don't want to say the streets are flooded, but like everyone is outside and very few people are, are wearing masks. Um, but it is, um, it has just been something that our family has needed to discuss to say, you know, especially because Matt has the potential for continued exposure. Um, and we don't know enough about the virus to know if people could potentially get it twice or what that impact is. Like it's, it's simply unknown. Um, and so we've just had to say like, that's not something that we're doing right now. You know, when we went glamping, I, um, I was super nervous. Um, but, we had to, you know, follow certain rules that we set for ourselves that weren't necessarily rules um, that were happening, or um, as is happening a lot of places, the rules are enacted by governors and then not being um, carried out by all businesses, shall we say, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, the camp store employees were wearing masks pulled below their chin because they didn't want to wear a mask. And I'm like, that's not how that works, right? You understand that's that's not um, how that works. It... Yeah. Anyway. It's basically just at that point, uh, protecting your chin. Like, why, why bother except that legally you have to have a mask on your face? But, um, yeah, I think that the um, – the social contract between another human and you is kind of um, broken or is mm-hmm. upheld. And you you have to decide what that is with whom, you know, and I, I have had contact with my father. I think I mentioned last time we talked about this for Father's Day it was our first time together. And we, you know, it was something we all talked about and understood the risks and um, were outside and, you know, not together. We didn't hug. We didn't, you know, touch, so to speak. And that was something that we decided we were going to do. But I was not comfortable then extending that to, um, you know, further gatherings so to speak you know like that's and that's my decision and it's it's hard and my kids were like well why can't we go to the fourth of july party and i think it just really it makes it harder to be a parent i'll just say that right like being a parent during this has escalated everything to such a higher extent like we have to um we have to talk more um, about what's going on in the world that is not great between politics and, you know, people's health and people suffering. All of that is incredibly hard to talk about with your kid, with your kids um, or whomever might be, you know, 
a person that you're parenting. Um, and I think that the idea of, you know, you're also like spending more time with them than you have, mm-hmm. which, you know, compounds upon that. And it's, it just becomes um, this feeling of overwhelm and this feeling of frustration. And I, I can't imagine what it's like for them. You know, I was um, talking with someone recently about, how this is going to shape our children, the fact that they have had to deal with us. Like, what are they, what is this generation going to be on the outcome? And I just think that if we establish what these rules are for you and your family up front, it makes it that much easier to define, nope, that's not, that's not something that we can do because Blah, blah, blah. Right. Like in the heat of the moment, it's a lot harder to discuss those things. And so, you know, we've had family meetings before we saw people, you know, playing outside um, on the street or whatever. So that when they saw that, it was me saying, but you know that we're not doing that because because we've we've all agreed that that's, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, And it's the only thing that I can say makes it a little bit easier. Um. Because it's it's not going to be easier. And I would, you know, all my kids have had um, birthdays that have been in social isolation. So I would say it is possible, you know, they had Zoom parties and um, different things like that. Um, video games these days, as much as you hear me talk about that not being a great thing for my kids, they do have structured time for video games because it is like hanging out and having a play date. They're talking to their friend, they're engaging with them in 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 play that is virtual, but it is a way for them to connect. And so, you know, we've just been mindful of those things that we can do to connect the kids that are not physical. Yeah, we've been doing the same. Um, I want to mention that all of the topics related to um, the sort of mask myths that Jeannie referred to in her question were covered a couple of episodes ago. Um, And there's also a very thorough um, article on my website where I go through all of the science on mask use, along with the concerns about hypoxia um, and hypercapnia and, um, and even go into like, clinical trials in uh, people with COPD wearing N95 masks and actually showing that that does not cause either hypoxia or hypercapnia, even in that very susceptible group of people. So um, so I just kind of want to skip over that, that part um, because we've covered it so recently on the show. Um, and I've got this very thoroughly cited um, article on my website for people to go to. I do want to address this aspect of um, what isolation is doing to our immune systems. And it's actually very um, similar to Dawn's question. So I'm going to actually read Dawn's question and kind of answer Dawn and Jeannie's question together. Um, So Dawn wrote, I'm wondering if you're concerned about isolation and how it's affecting all of our microbiomes. Gut health has always been so huge for you. Have you done any articles or podcasts on gut immune health related to surviving COVID-19? And do you expect a surge of illness related to suppressed immune systems after isolation? And I sort of feel like all of this is linked, right? So the idea that um, really this ties into sort of like the original version of the hygiene hypothesis. So the hygiene hypothesis as sort of originally proposed in the 90s was that we needed to have this exposure to pathogens, especially early in life, to help educate and shape the immune system. 
what has changed about the hygiene hypothesis in recent years is the understanding of the gut microbiome. And so that entire hypothesis has sort of blended with something called the old friends hypothesis, which is actually that the thing we need exposure to is not pathogens, but rather this sort of diverse range of microbial exposures to seed our microbiomes. The old friends hypothesis even recognizes that there are some, uh, what would be considered uh, like parasites that our immune systems have sort of co-evolved with over millennia and that it's not just, um, it's not just that we, we, um, need that exposure. It's that our immune systems actually require the continued presence of these microorganisms in order to fully develop. Um, and our, our current understanding of that is very much in the context now of the microbiome that, what we really need is this acquisition of a diverse microbiome and where hygiene has steered us wrong is our overuse of uh, cleaners, of disinfectants, has made our environments so uh, sterile from probiotic organisms, especially these sort of environmental probiotics that we kind of, we lump under the umbrella of soil-based organisms. They don't all live in just soil, um, but they're so fundamental for the gut microbiome. And when we overclean our environments and we're not, you know, doing things like hanging out in barns or rolling around in giant mud puddles, um, other ways that we would get exposed to those species of microbes, that that lack of seeding our microbiomes with those microbes then can basically result in an overactive immune system. So these microbes are very, very important for educating the immune system and regulating the immune system. So that's that's one piece of, of this puzzle, right, is that we've got this... Um, this sort of well-understood theory that says we need to have this exposure to environmental organisms in order for our immune systems to be educated. And there are a lot of studies showing that social isolation and loneliness can impact the immune function. But here's the interesting part, is that mechanism is not related to the gut microbiome. So these studies that have looked at social isolation and loneliness um, basically show that this is a neuroendocrine mechanism. So it's basically mediated through hormones, through activation of the HPA axis, and it increases inflammation while lowering immunity. That's the same thing that we see in immune dysfunction. We actually talked about all of those mechanisms in episode uh, 382, where we talked about social media, and it's covered in, I have an article on my website that we can link to in the show notes called The Health Benefits of Connection. So we do see that social isolation and loneliness can impact immune function. Um, I think that the, the heart of this question is, the, does physical isolation impact immune function? We can, um, you know, we've already sort of talked about ways that we can try to stay socially connected while physically isolated. Obviously, there's that's not the that's not just like a oh I'll just do this now and then it magically happens it requires uh, effort and um, consistency and uh, you know adjustment to to really continue to feel that social connection and maintain connections with our our close friends and family but this question 
of, uh, you know, Jeannie basically asked, is our immune system being suppressed by not being exposed to pathogens? And Don asked, are we going to, are we going to just like all of a sudden be all sick all the time as soon as we get back together? Um, there aren't actually very many studies of what happens to humans when they live in a sterile environment. And that's because there are so few truly sterile environments in the world. Um, but what I found really interesting is I was sort of looking at like, what about the biosphere? What about hermits who live on islands all by themselves? Like, is there any evidence that people who live um, isolated for a long period of time have suppressed immune systems? And on Earth, there is no such evidence. But orbiting Earth... Um, actually, really interestingly, is the astronauts on the space station do have a suppression of their immune systems. Um, and actually, studies showed that after about 90 days on the space station, especially first timers, they have the biggest effect on their immune systems. They have about a 50% reduction in the activity of a, a type of cell called a natural killer cell. Natural killer cells um, are a type of cell who... Uh, go around and find uh, cancer shenanigan type cells. So they'll find a cell that is uh, what's called transformed, um, and that basically means it's not it's not it's not doing its normal job. There's been enough changes in that cell that it has become a different kind of cell, and generally like a cancerous cell. And if that cancer cell is left there and allowed to divide, then it could become a tumor. Natural killer cells um, and actually cytotoxic T cells are the other cell type that do this. They patrol the body for these cancerous shenanigans and put a stop to it. Um, and they're also very important for detecting virally infected cells. So they find healthy cells in our body that um, like regular cells in our body, not healthy because they've been infected by a virus. Um, but they find those cells and they basically uh, force those cells to commit cell suicide called apoptosis. It's pretty intense. Um, but these are really important cell type for our immune systems, especially in terms of cancer risk and viral infections. But here's, here's where this is like fascinating, but probably not very instructive in terms of how our physical isolation is going to impact us. Because the proposed mechanism for this reduction in natural killer cells has nothing to do with the fact that astronauts go through like a quarantine period before they hop on their rockets. That's how they get there, right? Um, and then they, on the space station, that means that nobody's bringing a, you know, flu virus or whatever with them. Um, that is not the mechanism behind this suppression in the immune system. The proposed mechanisms are stress. Um, it's a a physically stressful environment. It's a psychologically stressful environment. Um, so that is one of the mechanisms. There's, they're also exposed to a lot more radiation, and we know that radiation can impact uh, immune cell function. Um, so that's one of the proposed mechanisms, and also the impact of microgravity on how our cells are, um, are working is one of the proposed mechanisms. And so um, what's interesting is through this, the biggest risk to astronauts besides cancer is actually persistent infections. Because we have viruses in our body all the time, including viruses that um, cause illness that we never actually get rid of. So the, the best example that people may have know of is um, the varicella zoster um, uh, virus causes chickenpox. 
And uh, it lives in your body at all times. And in times of stress, it can sort of reactivate and replicate. And that's what causes shingles. Um, herpes simplex virus one causes cold, cold sores. And that's like you never actually get rid of that virus once you've had a cold sore once. In times of stress, that virus can replicate. Um, an Epstein-Barr that causes mononucleosis is another sort of similar virus that we tend to carry with us our whole lives. And so, you know, in that, when you start to think of it that way, you realize that we're, we're never actually not exposed to pathogens because we carry them with us. And so to get back to, um, I think the heart of this question is, well, if we're not sharing our colds and flus through cold and flu season, say, like, let's say this ends up being isolation for most of us for about a year, is there any evidence that that's going to suppress our immune system? And the answer is no. Um, the answer is, um, unless we're exposed to radiation and the stress of living in a low gravity environment, um, we, we don't have any evidence that that's going to suppress our immune systems. But that's different than saying there won't be a resurgence of you know, nasty colds and flus when we get back together again. So it's happening through our physical isolation. We're not sharing COVID, hopefully, but we're also not sharing any of the other normal things that go around. And so if that um, virus has mutated, let's say it's just a regular cold virus, um, has mutated enough during the time that uh, you're cloistered, um, when you are exposed to that virus, it's now an, it's another new virus that you don't have immunity to. So you are more likely to get it. So your risk of infection is simply related to not to immune suppression, but to the fact that um, you're basically taking um, a period of time where all of these new viruses are emerging and circulating and then compressing that when you reemerge from physical isolation, being potentially exposed to all of those. But here's the good thing. We are suppressing the circulation of all of those different viruses right now and bacteria. And so one of the things that I think is a, a really interesting talking point with COVID is what can we learn to take beyond this pandemic into our normal you know, cold and flu season. Because if we can physically isolate at the first sign of symptoms, um, rather than, you know, our, our current societal norm is to, you know, grab some over-the-counter medications for symptom relief and tough it out and go to work. If we could embrace mask use throughout cold and flu season, we could be preventing a lot of uh, sort of regular viral illness, including death from the seasonal flu every year, by taking some of these things, by just um, more of us adopting hand washing um, as a lifelong habit, um, or that sort of proper 30-second long hand washing. Um, and so, yes, it's likely that when we start getting back together, there will be some other viruses that we start sharing. But I think it's actually likely to be a fairly slow build because we've taken ourselves out of circulation for all of these different viruses. The last piece of Don's question that I think is really interesting is, um, you know, if we're physically isolated, is that impacting our gut microbiomes? What's really interesting is that, I mean, the most important 
determinants of the gut microbiome are diet, uh, nutrient status, like your vitamin D levels, and your hormones, which are reflected uh, or a reflection of your lifestyle choices. So those are the most important things. But there is uh, an effect of exposure, and we actually see this in um, studies of family groups. So um, we know that, for example, um, baboons, the closer their relationships are, the more physical interactions they have, the more um, in common their microbiomes have, like the more species they have that are the same. And this is seen in humans too. Um, which is really interesting is married couples that report having a close relationship will have more similar gut microbiomes to each other than siblings will. And it's um, a reflection of the fact that we do, whenever we, we touch a person, we are sharing our microbiome because our skin microbiome, as soon as we touch our, our mouth, becomes, you know, seeds our mouth microbiome, we swallow, that seeds our gut microbiome. So our um, microbiomes in our different areas of our body are also interrelated because of that. And so when we're touching another individual, we're, we're sharing microbes. This is most relevant in the family environment. And so if we're cloistered as a whole family, things are not likely to be changing so much. But there is potentially an effect, say, of um, kids not getting exposed to some bacteria, but by not being at school because they're not physically touching their uh, friends, but this is a very, very small effect on the gut microbiome compared to the most important thing of healthy diet, um, no nutritional deficiencies, and healthy lifestyle. So all in all, you know, my process for looking after my gut microbiome through the physical isolation is no different than at any other time. Um, so it is diet and lifestyle. Um, that's all laid out in exquisite detail in my new gut health guidebook ebook. The short, uh, take home is nutrient dense diet with lots of vegetables, get enough sleep, manage stress, live an active lifestyle. Um, we've talked about probiotics, um, especially soil-based organisms like just thrive probiotics on the show before, um, that helps to rep to, replace exposure to things like organic soil um, and fermented foods, which um, tend to have the highest variety of different species, especially if they're wild ferments. Um, and I think that um, I'm trying to get as much nature time as possible in places where I feel safe, like my backyard um, or uh, far, far out in the woods where I know like the paths aren't, aren't frequented. I go during, um, er, very early mornings when I know there's not going to be a lot of people there. So those are all of my action items for the gut microbiome, but to condense all of that, there's no evidence that our immune systems are going to be suppressed by a year of living in our homes. And there's no evidence that our gut microbiomes are going to suffer from a year living in our homes. Um, the things that are pro more problematic is the impact of feeling lonely and socially isolated because that part can suppress um, our immune systems and can reduce the diversity of our gut microbiomes. That's mediated through a neuroendocrine effect, not through a lack of exposure to pathogens or lack of exposure to probiotic organisms through human touch.
I loved when you were talking about um, the idea of a sterile environment. This is a question that I've heard a lot. And I know we're both big fans of Laurel, um, who has the awkward name that she laughs about all the time on Instagram. It was never intended to be a scientific name of um, King Gutter Baby. And she actually did an Mm -hmm. interview with someone where she talked about this. And it was kind of eye-opening for me because... I'd been asked the same question and I was like, well, I'm not sure this doesn't sound good. Yeah, we're not being exposed to germs. Yeah, we're cleaning more. That seems, you know, in my mind, I was going to the same place that a lot of people are going. And then um, when I heard her talk about it, she she kind of laughed and she was like, you're not in a sterile environment. Like, you're you're not like, you're still, (laughs) you know, you're still um, being exposed. And I think like that, I don't know, that was just such like a light bulb moment for me. And I think you hit the nail on the head, compare yourself with, you know, an astronaut and, and how they're living and their limited exposure. Um, And like you said, they have so much more on their system happening to them versus Mm -hmm. us. Um, But even from that perspective, I think, you know, we see movies or we hear of people who are, um, have, have immune Um, dysregulation and need to be in a sterile bubble, so to speak. That's a completely different situation than we're in. You're still, you know, one of the things um, you didn't mention, but we've talked about before is, you know, you're still eating fruits and vegetables that are grown in the earth that have Mm -hmm. that, you know, probiotic nature, the um, contribution to your microbiome is so important. And we've, um, Sarah mentions all the time how she, you know, will leave the organic dirt on her vegetables, including the bugs or whatever. Um, I don't eat the bugs. I pick the bugs off. It sounds to me then like I don't, you're I don't, picking them I off and just putting out. them straight in your mouth. That's that's the envision <laughs> that I had. It's like, mm, yummy. It only happened that one time. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, I just kind of want to remind everyone um, in a lighthearted fashion that, like, We're as much as we're doing to disinfect our environments and to keep ourselves safe from the virus, there is still so much in our environment, whether it's in your backyard or the food that you're eating or the the family that you're quarantining with that are contributing to that immune system. And I think if the um, concern that someone brings about is that when we come out of isolation, there will be a higher likelihood of people getting a cold or potentially the flu. Um, wouldn't that have still existed over the year that we were in social mm-hmm. isolation? Like that yeah. person would probably have gotten the cold or the flu during that period. That's why when they come out, they're they're going to get it. And I think if we if that is a genuine concern for someone and not a talking point to use against isolation, then there are a lot of things that they can do to boost their immune system. And Sarah's Gut Health book is a, a great place to start taking probiotics, a lot of the other things that we've talked about on the show, so that you can help your body be as strong as possible for when you do come out. But we're, I don't know, I just envisioned um, when when I heard that and I had that light bulb moment, I envisioned myself in like a uh, glass room and, you know, like all white mm-hmm. glass room and like the super sterile environment. And then I envision like then I compared that to my home and my boy's fingernails and all the dirt that's underneath them. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, no, not the same. <laughs> no. Um, 
I mean, obviously, it's an easier situation if you have a yard that you have access to. Um, but even growing some houseplants, um, start them, pot them in organic soil, you're going to have access to probiotics through just looking after a houseplant. Um, there's a lot of ways that we can increase our exposure to environmental probiotic microbes. Um, but again, I mean, the dominant things that are going to be impacting gut health are diet, nutrient status, and hormones as a reflection of, of your lifestyle choices. And those are all the things that we, um, you know, it's all, it's basically, it's the sum of our daily choices. And those are the things that have always been important. That's why we started this podcast and they're still important. Um, and that's not a surprise to a single one of our listeners. Um, but speaking of, I was going to, before we go on to the next question, um, tangential to this, can I, interject slash ask a question, um, understanding that I'm throwing it to you without, you know, preparation mm-hmm. on your end. One of the CDC My answer might be oh. um, one of the CDC recommendations, I don't think that was released yet when we were sick, um, but is something that I did that I would like to talk about in the context of um, this non-sterile environment is opening your windows for fresh air, for ventilation. Um, would that also be bringing in um, potential microbes that would be contributing to strengthening our immune system? Like, I, I feel like it would, but I'm not a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have never looked up what the... Um, what the microbial density of um, like moving air is. So, I mean, on a, on a like theoretical perspective, if you're moving air across a surface, right, there are particles, right? If you're moving air across dirt or sand or lawn, there's going to be some, um, pick up a very small particles into that air. Um, I would imagine that the higher the air, the faster the air is moving, the more particles it would pick up. So the more you can you know, just think about like when you're walking and it's really, really windy out and how like you can feel the grit in the wind, um, when it's a really good windstorm. Um, but whether or not that is, comparable like i would need to see like how many colony forming units per liter of air yeah yeah. it would be coming into your house in order to really be able to answer that question yeah i'm thinking about when my windows are open my home gets more dusty right like there is um there is some sort of particle in the air whatever it is so um just another example of from a this is a cdc recommendation um to open windows um and it's something we've been trying to do when it's not super hot here. So at night or if it's raining or anything like that, we try to open our windows for fresh air and ventilation and fresh air never hurt anybody, right? Like, isn't that something your yeah. grandmother would have said? Um, so another thing to consider um, when you're thinking about your home as a sterile environment, like, do you see dust? I'm, I mean, I know our house is dusty, um, 
something is coming through there, right? It's if it were sterile, there would be no dust accumulation. So, oh, okay. So I'm going to say something incredibly gross that you're going to hate learning. Oh, I'm already cringing. So, like, eighty percent dust is your sloughed off dead skin cells. Yes, I do know that. Yes. Okay, so you're still going to slough off skin cells. Um, that's still going to form dust, and then the other twenty percent is made up of other, right, pet dander. Um, dirt that might come in and dust mites that are eating your dead skin cells. But that's not sterile. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, that's my, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying, I'm saying that you're, you're still going to slough off the skin cells, even if your windows are closed. All right. Fair enough. Okay. Um, okay. So Jessica's question, um, I think is a, a really good follow up to diet and lifestyle is still important. Um, so Jessica writes, I know you both said you don't want to do COVID episodes every week, but I have a COVID question. I've seen this article pass around along with some general idea, uh, that if we push real food, metabolic balancing and immune support, the death toll from COVID would be much lower. In conjunction, there's been criticism of the messaging from the media that only pushes vaccines, drugs, and basic immune support. I know this is an oversimplification, but in the spirit of science literacy, I'd love to hear your more nuanced view of why this is or isn't a feasible solution. I'm sure you get lots of questions, but thank you for your science-based approach to whole living. I am an academic librarian, aka info junkie, recently diagnosed with early stage Hashimoto's, no medication, but high antibodies. So you and Stacy are a godsend. I don't feel like I am. And yes, I don't want to do COVID episodes every week. <laughs> Jessica, you know us so well. Um, I, I think this gets to the root of um, well, what we talked about a lot on our last COVID show with this mi- mixed messaging in the community as well. And so, you know, I know, Sarah, you have some science to jump into, but I, I also want to state that you don't have to pick or choose in wanting to strengthen the immune system and healthy lifestyle choices of people and respecting the science that COVID can infect anybody in any health mm-hmm. situation, right? Like these are not two independent things. Like you're not either for healthy living or in support of social distancing and wearing masks. Like you can, these yeah. things can coexist. And I, I think that's what's been difficult for um, some of us in the community, right? I, I still want to talk about strengthening your immune system to optimize your health. And I do strongly feel that, you know, the things that we talk about with gut microbiome, with sleep, um, with lower stress, with healthy eating and anti-inflammatory lifestyle choices, um, that this is good for you and your immune system. Does it make you different word, same spelling, immune from COVID? No, right? Like there have been so many cases of people who are quote unquote healthy living, um, but still get it. And, and I think that's, that's the difficult part for me is, is like, yes, we can still support ourselves and and live healthy. Um, but that doesn't mean that all this other stuff doesn't still need to happen, not just for you, 
but for the community at large. And that that's like the, the biggest thing for me that makes it frustrating. And I know, Sarah, when we talk about the racial disparities with COVID, when we talk about um, the different uh people who can be affected. So let's say your immune system is super strong and therefore um, you get it but are asymptomatic. Or maybe you're asymptomatic, not necessarily because you're healthy, but for who knows what reason. We don't know at this point. Um, And you don't wear a mask. You don't do those things. And then you pass it to people who are essential workers or who... um, have compromised immune systems. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's the thing for me is um this feels like an act of service to others instead of feeling like I'm something I'm doing for myself. And and if we look at it from that perspective, it's a no-brainer for me. Yeah, I uh thank you for emphasizing that there is no healthy diet or lifestyle that would prevent us from getting COVID or even guarantee that we wouldn't have a severe course of disease or even die from COVID. Um, And that's one of the things that we have seen that we don't, we really don't understand enough about this virus to be able to look at somebody's, you know, medical history on paper and say, you're good or you're not, right? We've had too many examples of perfectly healthy young people who have died. Um, And so as much as diet and lifestyle are really important for immune function and do have the capacity to improve outcomes. I think that it, we need to figure out a way of communicating the importance of healthy choices um, that doesn't take away from the messaging around the importance of social distancing and masks and physical isolation and the importance of uh, a safe and effective vaccine, right? That is our, our best chance of actually getting to life as, as normal. And that's why it's such a great thing that there's over 100 vaccines in clinical trials right now. And so I think that, you know, really our challenge with communicating the importance of diet and lifestyle is the same challenge we have in regular times, communicating the importance of healthy diet and lifestyle. First of all, we need to actually provide the accurate science-backed information of what is healthy without the dogma, which we talked about on the um, show last week. Um, And then we need to improve access to healthy foods. We need to improve the affordability of healthy foods. We need to give people support in terms of learning how to cook, how to shop, um, how to get rid of these hyper-palatable addictive foods that manipulate your your taste buds to the point where you don't get joy out of healthy food. Like that's a huge problem that we need to overcome if we want to be able to help everybody adopt a healthy diet and lifestyle. Um, we need to make it okay for people to go to bed at nine o'clock at night, for adults to go to bed at nine o'clock at night um, socially, right? Like there's so many barriers to adopting a healthy diet and lifestyle broadly across our entire society that we've faced before this pandemic. And, um, and so it's such a, a multidimensional challenge that needs to be overcome. There's an education piece, there's an accessibility piece, there's an affordability piece, and then there's a practical, you know, in your home help implementation 
um, you know, help with that learning curve, help with that transition piece. And we need to figure all of those things out. And we're not going to do that um, this month. Like it, it's just, it's a huge, huge challenge that, um, that requires so much resources to actually be able to address at the scale that it needs to be addressed. Um, Cause it's not just about, you know, fixing the USDA dietary guidelines, right? 9% of people choose their foods based on the USDA dietary guidelines. Like nobody pays attention to that anymore. Um, so we have such a huge challenge to overcome. Now that that doesn't mean that diet and lifestyle isn't important. And actually there is now, um, you know, like the initial argument was these diseases that increase risk of severe COVID like diabetes and high blood pressure are directly linked to diet. Therefore poor diet increases risk of COVID, right? So if it's a A equals B and B equals C, then A must equal C. It's that type of argument. But there is some data now showing some nutrient deficiencies are particularly problematic. So uh, there's some emerging data showing that uh, low selenium intake increases uh, mortality from COVID-19. This was done based on looking at different regions in China um, that have different uh, selenium content in their soil. So they're well known to have low selenium diets versus high selenium diets, like also higher selenium near the coast where they're eating more fish. And we're basically able to show that the lowest selenium intake regions had about five times higher mortality than the highest selenium intake regions. There's obviously a lot more science that needs to go through that to figure out, you know, if you just eat some more you know, seafood and Brazil nuts, are you going to be then more protected. We don't, that's, that's the piece of information we still don't have. Um, there have been some studies though, that have been looking at, um, supplementation when people are diagnosed and looking at how that impacts disease course. There's a very small preliminary study that has yet to be peer reviewed where they, uh, gave older COVID-19 patients B12, D and magnesium and saw a significant reduction in, in the proportion of patients that uh, clinically deteriorated. Um, so fewer of them required oxygen support or ICU administration after taking that supplement compared to their control group. Again, needs to be peer reviewed. There is an ongoing study looking at the combo of vitamin C and zinc. So this is definitely a, um, a area of active research. There's a lot still to learn. Um, but vitamin D is probably is probably the most relevant nutrient and something that could be incorporated very simply into a national message, which is what Jessica is really asking. Um, so I want to read Amanda's question because it's very specifically about COVID, uh, about vitamin D and COVID, and it's going to open a giant can of worms, which is is awesome. So Amanda wrote, I love all your recent podcasts on COVID. I'm so glad Stacy and her family are doing well. Sarah, your research is the topic of many conversations with my family and friends. Recently, I read an article talking about a link between low vitamin D levels and COVID. Just wondering your thoughts on this. What science have you found to supposition or dispute this, if any? I want to provide some context for Amanda's question. There is a uh, fairly well-known blogger in our community who came out in early March or late February, I think, uh, with an ebook that 
made a case for avoiding vitamin D supplementation because it increases the ACE2 receptor, which is the receptor that the novel coronavirus is binding to to enter our cells. And I have had a ton of questions from nutritionists and health coaches who saw this research and who were like, wait, you know, does this mean I should take all of my clients off of vitamin D? Should we be trying to be vitamin D deficient? Um, so I'm going to actually uh, wrap up a debunking of this, uh, you know, vitamin D, um, avoiding vitamin D supplementation for ACE2, um, along with Amanda's question. So recently, there's actually been um, a, a huge increase in studies linking low vitamin D levels with increased severity of COVID. Um, the first few, there was um, the first few studies were basically done at the population level, which meant it was very hard to to really identify cause and effect. And so there was a lot of, well, maybe like early on. So the first few studies were basically they'd look at a region, so like a, a country or a territory or a latitude, right? A city at this latitude versus a city at this latitude. Look at average vitamin D deficiency rates and then look at mortality rate. And that that type of analysis resulted in a varying results. So some papers showed vitamin D had no effect. There were other papers that showed that low vitamin D doubled mortality rate. So it just, it really, um, you know, that's the way science is performed. We start with these preliminary observations and then we get more granular to really answer the question. So in those preliminary observations, it basically opened up more, more questions than it, than it provided answers. But now we have studies at the individual level where they're measuring in individuals' vitamin D um, or looking at people who had vitamin D tests, say, within the year before their diagnosis. And that is much better quality data to look at to really be able to get into this. And um, this it's actually showing that there's quite a large effect. Um, so there's been a quite a few different studies that have looked at this. Um, and, uh, one analysis that, um, is, uh, has just been published now is actually showed that, uh, again, this might be as much as a, a factor of two. So that having, um, a adequate vitamin D status basically halves the mortality rate compared to having vitamin D deficiency. And there have been tests, there have been, um, studies that have actually looked at vitamin D deficiency versus insufficiency. Um, so deficiency is sort of defined as uh, a vitamin D of uh, like 20 or less. I think it's like 18.6 or less. Um, vitamin D insufficiency is like 20 to 30. Um, and basically shown that the more vitamin D deficient you are, the statistically higher chances of dying from COVID. Um, or, you know, they've looked at, they've done, they've taken this from the other perspective and looked at the prevalence of vitamin D deficiency in ICU patients. So in ICU COVID patients, vitamin D uh, insufficiency prevalence was found to be in one study, 84.6% um, of those people were deficient vitamin D compared to 57.1% in uh, patients who were on the COVID floor, but not admitted to the ICU. Um, now we know vitamin D deficiency is very prevalent in our societies, but that kind of huge difference is um, pretty striking. And they found that 100% of the patients who were less than 75 um, in the ICU were vitamin D deficient. Um, and, um, and that was all, you know, of something like 
Um, 70% were uh, less than 20 nanograms per mil vitamin D, 30% were less than 10. So that's very, very low vitamin D. And there was actually a study that did some pretty, um, some, some pretty intense statistical analysis. Um, they did something called a Mann-Whitney-U and a chi-squared test, um, which is basically trying to come up with a mathematical formula for like for each what would be measured by standard deviation of vitamin D. So each like level of vitamin D, how does that change risk of having a severe outcome? And they actually found that for each standard deviation, the odds of a mild versus a severe outcome was approximately eight times. So like eight times higher chance of a severe outcome with one standard deviation, lower vitamin D. Um, and while they looked, when they looked at the odds of a critical outcome, which is like putting you in ICU an event, it was a 20, almost a 20 times difference. So you look at this like collection of studies and it, it's, it's just in the last month become really, really clear that low vitamin D is a risk factor for severe COVID and death from COVID. So, um, you know, these studies on average, I saw one that suggested people take like 10,000 IU a day for three weeks to bring vitamin D levels up as rapidly as possible and then 5,000 IU to maintain. Like the, even the, the studies are suggesting these really high doses of vitamin D to help address um, this really prevalent deficiency. Like deficiency is all over the place. And there's actually been some studies um, showing that perhaps one of the reasons why the rates um, have been lower in the Northern hemisphere over the summer is related to the fact that when people are outside, their vitamin D levels go up. So we tend to have, um, or at least a percentage of the population has, um, seasonal fluctuations in their vitamin D where they have enough vitamin D over the summer months and into the fall. And then their vitamin D starts, starts dropping late fall and into the winter. So they have low vitamin D by sort of late winter, early spring. And that might be a key driver of like cold and flu season in general, but also some of the the big patterns that we're seeing um, once you take into account things like quarantines and shelter in place orders and mask use and all of those other things. So how does this relate to the ACE2 receptor? Um, so this is where the initial, I think, uh, oversimplistic view of like uh, if the coronavirus is entering our cells via the ACE2 receptor, it is true that vitamin D in uh, situations where ACE2 is low increases ACE2. So vitamin D does increase ACE2 in various different disease models. Uh, so clearly we just want to reduce our ACE2 and then uh, we SARS can't answer or the SARS-CoV-2 virus can't enter our cells and that will fix everything. Nope, that's not it. So, things to know. Um, ACE2 is a, um, it's actually an enzyme that's membrane bound. And it is part of something called the renin angiotensin system, which is a very complex system in our bodies that does a few really important things. So, it regulates blood pressure. It's very, very important. Um, it's actually why that's where ACE inhibitors come from as a um, as a, a, a drug for cardiovascular disease. It comes from basically inhibiting certain parts of this immune system um, that are, or of this uh, renin angiotensin system 
that are out of whack in cardiovascular disease, one of those is reduced ACE2. So you um, inhibit ACE uh, so that ACE2 can proportionally be more active so that you can lower blood pressure and thereby reduce risk of cardiovascular disease. So uh, what's happening when the novel coronavirus binds with ACE2, it's actually uh, reducing ACE2. And we see ACE2 reduction it happens in hypertension. So people with high blood pressure already have low ACE2. It happens in various models of pulmonary injury, including acute respiratory distress syndrome. And that that reduction in ACE2 is actually um, reducing the stability of the um, pulmonary epithelial membranes. So it's basically making our lungs more easily damaged by inflammation and leakier. So um, the, the renin-angiotensin system isn't just regulating blood pressure. It's also really, really important in the lung. That's why we have so many ACE2 receptors in our lungs in the first place. Um, it's one of the reasons why coronavirus is so smart, because it hijacks this really important system to be able to get into our lungs. But that uh, reduction in ACE2 caused by the virus binding with that receptor is actually a main driver of the severe lung damage that is causing the more severe disease. And vitamin D in models of lung injury increases ACE2. And this may be one of the primary mechanisms behind why vitamin D status is so strongly linked with severe COVID. Obviously, there's an immune function part of this equation completely because vitamin D is so important for a normal functioning immune system. But the renin-angiotensin system may be another key manipulation point where vitamin D can benefit our ability to survive COVID unscathed. And so the, the truth is actually the complete opposite, it, that it's very, very important to test vitamin D levels and supplement to bring your levels up to normal. Um, uh, researchers are suggesting at least 60 nanograms per milliliter as a, as a target. I know my functional medicine doctor considers 60 to be the absolute bottom acceptable number, um, and he would actually far rather see 70 um, nanograms per mil. Um, obviously that's a discussion to have with your doctor. Um, but the, the whole argument of avoiding vitamin D because it increases ACE2 is completely backwards. That virus is, uh, you're not going to reduce ACE2 with vitamin D deficiency to a point where the virus can't get in. It's going to get in no matter what. And then if your ACE2 is low, uh, to start with, um, which is probably why people with high blood pressure, that's like the, the highest, um, a risk factor, a pre-existing condition that we know of, um, that it's probably mediated through them already starting with low ACE2 and then the virus lowers it even more. So their lungs are more susceptible to, to injury. So COVID-19 normalizing ACE2 levels in the context of lung injury is very, very beneficial. <sighs> I want to take this moment to say, um, you and I have had a lot of conversations on addressing this vitamin D question that, like you said, we've been getting from a lot of people. And I want to refer to the 
72,000 references approximately Mm -hmm. um, that you've included in the show notes if people have questions. I think one of the things that we've tried to do always with this show is empower you to um, educate yourself on the science so that if you hear one thing from someone and something else um, from someone else that you seek references and read them as much as you can yourself, whether that's a summary or whatever it may be. And if you can't find references um, to understand that that is an opinion of someone and then you're going off of um, what you know about that person in general. Um, And I think what's hard about this is that um, everyone is trying to do the best that they can with the information that they have. No one, no, and I'll just put put this out there and I hope that it's a true statement. No one is seeking to um, reduce your health to increase your chances of COVID. Like that's, you know, if someone yeah, says... Yeah, no, I don't, I, I think this person's just wrong. Right. I don't think it's a conspiracy. I don't think, right. Yeah, right. I don't think they're trying to be wrong. I think they're just wrong. Right. (laughs) So I just, I want to say that, you know, it could be that you hear two contradictory things from two people that you respect. And that doesn't mean that you need to lose respect for either of them. It just means sometimes, you know, people interpret information different ways, or they have a difference of opinion. I mean, we, we shared what our opinion was on the, on the last show about, some of the opinions in the community as it relates to, you know, optimizing the immune system and different things like that, right? Like, and and you have a choice as a person who is learning, who is being educated, um, to take that information and empower yourself to learn more. And so I, I feel very strongly, and but I am also very biased, that Sarah's information is um, way in depth. And I also feel that from um, just a, a logical perspective before you went so into detail on this with all of the references that knowing that so many of the cases show vitamin D deficiency, it wouldn't make sense to say that avoiding vitamin D would improve the outcome with COVID. Like that, to me, that just was like mm-hmm. not making sense, right? Like if I'm trying to put those puzzle pieces together, like I see this over here, I see this over here, and somehow they're not coming together in, in harmony and unison. And therefore, seeing the science that you've shared does um, help those things come together for me. So I hope that it's helped our listeners the same way. And I hope that um, you feel like I said, empowered with information rather than more confused than you were before. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, go- I mean, and I, 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 I do want to give some, some grace to the, the person who has been talking about vitamin D. I studied acute respiratory distress syndrome for my first postdoctoral research fellowship, which was mentored by the chief of cardiology and dean of medicine. And there was a, a PhD student in that same lab who was studying the renin angiotensin system. So it's a, all of, all of these different, um, like the, the biology of what's going on here is something I have a very, very strong foundation in. And the renin angiotensin system is so complex. Um, like it's, it's just, it, there's so much going on in it, um, that 
I think it's a lot to ask of even a very scientifically literate layperson to get into that level of detail to be able to understand all of the different pieces going on. That being said, I think that if somebody isn't taking the time to really like to really read through all of these papers and there's papers showing that ACE2 is decreasing in COVID and that that is increasing um, lung injury and uh, causing a more severe course of disease. I, I, I think it is only responsible to um, make sure your information's correct before you put it out there, especially if you're going to do things like tell somebody to take a supplement or discontinue a supplement. Before we move on from this, I just want to give our reminder that neither one of us are doctors and none of this is medical advice. We have always and still encourage you to talk to your medical practitioner, test your vitamin D levels, and make sure that if you do start supplementing, you're doing so under the guidance of a medical professional. Agreed. Um, Hey, I know this was a question that you asked me um, once we finished recording a few weeks ago, and uh, I decided to uh, throw this information in here. So uh, there have been some... Um, uh, comments online that the reason why um, the black community has been so much more affected by COVID is because they have a higher likelihood of being vitamin D insufficient due to the higher levels of melanin in their skin. And uh, we'll put the, the link in the show notes to a reference, but this has been examined and um, it was found that vitamin D levels um, were were not adequate, nor were cardiometabolic factors, uh, and nor were socioeconomic factors. None of those things were sufficient to explain the uh, racial disparities in COVID-19. Um, so that's been busted. Thanks for answering the question. <laughs> I always ask of you offline, and then we put into the show. Um, Okay, I think another question that I asked, and we'll wrap up, we know it's been a long show, but we appreciate all of you asking questions so that we can um, help give, um, I, at least for me, I always feel better after we do these shows, because I feel more informed. And when you feel more informed, you feel more in control. At least I do. I'm a control freak. And so um, we hope that that's what these shows do for you. So thank you for submitting your questions. This one, uh, this next one from Mary, I know is something um, I had coming out of um, my COVID fog. And I think it will help those people who find themselves either um, sick or in preparation for if you do get sick, what next, right? Yeah. Um, so this question, I, I, I think this is a really great place to wrap this up. It's from Mary. And she writes, I have a question about COVID-19. I was sick uh, March 9th through 29th with fever and other wonderful symptoms. Um, I believe that's sarcasm. Uh, so I'm, re- I'm reading it that way. The doctor told me I probably had COVID-19. Thankfully, I wasn't sick enough to be hospitalized or tested here in Georgia. Uh, So hi, hi, also from Georgia, Mary. 
Uh, but I'm finally feeling much better. I am still tired and having more rheumatoid arthritis pain, but trying to keep eating AIP with three intros. Um, my hubby and I, both 62 years old, got tested for the antibodies. He had minor symptoms uh, that we didn't recognize as being COVID-related. Uh, we've both tested positive for the antibodies. So everything on the website or everything on the interwebs is telling me uh, I, I, they don't know what that means and they don't know if we're immune or whether or not we can get the disease again. My in-laws are 95 and 94 and live in Kentucky and we'd love to go see them and the rest of the family. Should we just continue to live our face mask lives? We're still wearing them inside the grocery store in consideration of others and not visit. Uh, we are interacting with small groups of neighbors in the hood playing pickleball. Stacy, did you know what pickleball is? I do. I actually have a really good friend who runs um a pickleball league here in northern virginia but it has uh closed down for right now i i had to look it up it's Uh, it's like taking over the nation it's it's incredible it's like it's like table tennis but on a giant table that you're running around on Um, yes okay it's like it's like (laughs) what is it uh ping pong but you're on the table but it's a on the ground. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. If you want to learn That's... more, check out my friend Beverly. Shout out to Beverly who doesn't listen to the show. Um, I play, <laughs> I play Maj with her. She's one of my neighborhood Maj ladies. She started pickle pickle ballers like with a Z. Uh, pickle pickle ballers USA. Um, you can check out and learn more about it. This is a complete That's... side tangent. I bet you had no idea that I had like a good friend who like I had never heard league. of pickleball. <laughs> I had to I had to Google it and I was like, what is this thing? Anyways, uh, so they're playing pickleball, washing hands, wiping down paddles and balls, etc. No hugging, no high fiving, somewhat social distancing, not perfect. Uh, we don't know anybody else who's had COVID nineteen or had symptoms. So wondering if you found any research con- concerning immunity and contagion, if immune. Um, I I I think that the the like science part of this question, which is pretty, pretty quick to answer is uh, we don't really have a good sense of how long you might be able to shed virus after your symptoms go away. So there's some research showing that people can shed virus for at least 24 days. um, And more public health officials are trying to talk about this because um, the 14 day quarantine period um, using air quotes, which no one can see, is probably insufficient. It probably, the recommendation should probably be stay quarantined for at least 14 days after symptoms end. And even that might not be enough. There are have been cases of people testing positives for, for months, for like 100 days, right? And some of them have, uh, some of these people have been sick for that whole period of time. And, um, and that's another thing they don't understand if it's like a post COVID inflammatory syndrome, or if those are people who are just still like chronically infected with COVID, but there have been some cases of people testing positive for months who symptoms have long since resolved. And what's not known is if that's just dead virus that's still being processed by the body. Um, and that's why you can't tell if a virus is dead or alive when you're doing RT-PCR because um, that's just looking for the RNA or if that person is still shedding live virus. We don't know. So we so we don't know how long you're contagious for um, and we don't know what really what that range is and we don't know how long immunity lasts, as we talked about on the show a couple weeks ago. 
So the, that piece of the question is, uh, unfortunately, like it's it's true. We we don't know if having antibodies or what level of antibodies is enough to protect you from reinfection. Um, although, you know, knowing how the immune system works, um, it would be very unusual for you to have no immunity. Like if you have antibodies, that should mean that you have at least a good amount of immunity, but we don't know if that's going to last a couple of years or the rest of your life. We don't know that yet. Um, and we don't know how long after your symptoms end before you're no risk to the people around you. So that makes making a decision on how to, you know, post COVID, can I return to life as normal? It's really hard to answer that question. I think the hardest thing for us was sending Matt back to work um, because he had off two weeks from diagnosis, which ended up being about 10 days after symptoms ended. And I felt Mm -hmm. like that was too soon. But um, I mean, we're really fortunate in that um, he, he practiced safe practices, right? Social distancing, he wore a mask, he washed his hands frequently, and no one that he worked with got sick. But I, I never want to feel like I'm putting anyone at risk, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, and I've talked about how, as we got back to life, we had conversations with everyone like, hey, we had COVID. Um, It's been X amount of days. Um, I need you, if I send you something in the mail, to wash it and wash your hands after like, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and then also, um, when my family came over, like we all talked about, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have father's day dinner outside and we're going to do this and not hug and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I just think communication is really essential. The other thing I haven't talked about, but I have gotten a couple of questions on is, um, how did we clean our home after? And so we did, our best to clean the home with, you know, steam up and cleaning supplies and disinfectants. But um, I'm going to be really honest and say it is not a personal skill of mine to clean the home. Like I, (laughs) it's not, it's not where my strength lies. Like my father is amazing. He's like, I don't know. He's just, he's magical in how pristine his, his home is all the time. I, I don't get it. Like the corners of my stairs were disgusting, right? Like it's just, I, that's anyway, personal skill, not one I have. So we have someone who normally cleans our home every two weeks, who has been cleaning our home since, um, before Finn was born. So that's like 13, years at this point. Um, She is a family friend. And so I was able to, again, have a conversation with her. And this was, um, I think, more than 30 days after our symptoms ended, Mm -hmm. if I remember correctly. Um, And I said to her, because she had not been coming, we had asked her to not come at the start of quarantine. And we chose to continue to provide income for her. Um, but that's just, you know, our personal choice. Um, anyway, so at that time I said, okay, it's been 30 days. We did get sick. Um, she had started back because the state had allowed it at that point. Um, I I mentioned our state was pretty strict about what could or could not be done. So we were legally allowed to proceed. And I said, you know, we had COVID on this date. Um, 
do you feel comfortable? Because she had said, do you want me to come back? And I said, do you feel comfortable cleaning our home? And she said, I will wear an N95 mask, which is something she had been doing, and gloves. And I will, um, and we left the home, and I will make sure to be super careful. I feel comfortable proceeding. And so, again, had she said, no, I'm not, like that would have been okay too. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I just think that it's really important if you have had the virus, there's no stigma with it, right? But people need to know. And I, I feel like I'm on some sort of like after school special on MTV about STDs, right? Like you need to talk <laughs> about it. Um, but it's it's only fair that someone know that they potentially are coming into contact with it. Whether or not viruses live on the surface, which we've talked about way back on the, on the show before, right? And so we... We just don't know enough about the virus in terms of once you have it. And could we have been shedding it and it still be in the house? I don't, we literally have no idea. And so yeah. people just need to have that information so that they can be careful. I'm sure you, if someone told you they had COVID two weeks ago, would behave differently is if you were talking to someone who didn't have it. But then are we really acting on the assumption that someone currently could be asymptomatic and giving you the virus, right? Like, so it's like this mental game mm -hmm. of doing all that math in your head. But I think it's really important. Like my biggest takeaway and what I practiced coming out of being sick was quarantining for as long as possible. Um, the boys and I did not leave the house probably for like 30 days after. I mean, we literally did not leave. The only person who left the house was Matt and that was to go to work and come back. We got our groceries delivered. We got, you know, like everything. We literally didn't leave our yard. Um, and then um, to communicate with people. Like, I, I just think that's, that's the least we can do. And I feel like we have a responsibility to inform others. I also think, um, you know, one of the things that I, I love that Mary is doing is still wearing masks to the grocery store. Um, and I, I just want to applaud her for that because I think that, um, you know, if you're walking around with no mask right now, um, if I'm also in that store, I don't know if you're somebody who, um, you know, just isn't, taking it seriously, doesn't want to wear a mask for whatever reason, and is potentially, you know, walking around as a pre-symptomatic <laughs> contagious person who is potentially going to give it to me, or if you're somebody who's already had it and immune, and therefore, you know, at least based on how the immune system normally works with viruses, probably not going to be able to infect me. I don't know that. Um, and so I think that continuing to wear a mask is, um, you know, for me, when I see other people wearing masks, I feel safer. It, um, it helps me not have as much anxiety. And I think it also is just a really good role model to be, you know, showing people it's not that hard to wear a mask. I mean, we, um, you know, cases are, are spiking here locally. And um, we decided a little over a week ago that we needed to start wearing masks for our neighborhood walks with the dog. And, um, and it was because of, you know, watching the data here locally, and having 
too many times where somebody would, you know, run past and not social distance as they're breathing heavily running past us. Or I have a cute puppy. So uh, people want to come up and, and pet the puppy. And that sometimes means they're um, forgetting social distance because puppies are is so distracting that they make you forget about six feet. Um, or there are people who weren't trying to social distance in the first place. Um, and so because of having so many um, like daily experiences where, um, even outside where transmission rates are definitely lower, especially if you're moving. Um, but through not my intention, um, coming into, you know, within that six foot radius of people, I decided, um, I felt safer wearing a mask. And so my kids wear masks when they come with me, my husband wears a mask. And I think of it as, it's not just a layer of protection for myself, but it is demonstrating that, yes, it's 93 degrees and 92% humidity. And guess what? I'm walking up those big hills with my mask on and it's fine. Um, the first few days I was like hyper aware that I had this mask on and then I got used to it and it's, it's fine. Um, and, um, and so I think that I just want to, I, I really want to, commend Mary for being that person who is continuing to wear a mask, both to be considerate and to be a good role model. And I think that it translates to, you know, whether Mary chooses to go visit her in-laws or not, Stacey, I think you're right on the point that it requires a conversation and requires a group decision. Um, but I think that it makes sense to continue mask wearing um, and to continue, uh, social distancing and not social isolating, right? That's physical, it's physical distance, not social distance, but we call it social distancing. Oh, that's a terrible term, isn't it? <laughs> it's, I mean, I think we all know what we mean at this point about social distancing, but as time has gone on, I think we, there's a more nuance to, um, understanding that we need to be physically distant, but still engage socially. So who it has been a doozy of a show. I want to thank all of our mm -hmm. listeners for asking questions and Sarah for pulling all of the science together. Um, and as we mentioned previously, we do have a little something coming for you. Um, in the very near future. And so make sure to stay tuned, be on our email lists and we will be um, connecting with you more about our, our thoughts on this very shortly. But in the meantime, we will be back again next week. Thank you for listening. We know it was a long show. Um, and we appreciate those of you who have stuck with us. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week. Thank you for being part of this awesome community. We know that we would be besties if only you could chime in. Super besties. The best way to stay in touch with us is to engage on our social media, subscribe to our newsletters, and share this podcast with others. Thank you for sharing. We love your reviews in iTunes, Stitcher, or however you listen. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. 
Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook Games.